0: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com/sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase. From Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
2: It's a poem entitled "Kindness" from Naomi Shihab Nye. She says, "Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside." You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. I find myself really fascinated with that image of catching the thread of all sorrows and seeing the size of the cloth. Because there's something in there that I find quite profound and extraordinary. There's a teaching of the Buddhas that's a little peculiar (laughs) or a little difficult to understand. And that is, you know how in the Buddhist psychology, when all these different positive qualities are spoken about, they're talked about as having a proximate cause that is some force, some condition or set of conditions which is the most likely avenue or platform for this positive quality to arise. So as we've been practicing loving kindness, the proximate cause of metta or loving kindness is said to be, is said to be seeing the good in someone because that is the space from which metta will most easily, readily, naturally, spontaneously arise. And if we can't see the good in someone, then it's remembering that universal wish to be happy. That becomes the proximate cause. Now, the proximate cause for faith is considered to be suffering. That's the peculiar teaching. (laughs) Because everybody suffers, clearly, at least from time to time in life, if not quite regularly in life. So what is it that happens within some people, some hearts, some minds, so that one comes from that space, one emerges from that space into greater faith, trust, confidence, clarity? These are all synonyms, actually. There's something quite magical that happens that's like alchemy. It's like purification, where one takes the suffering and somehow born out of it is faith. And I think it has something to do with this, seeing the size of the cloth, seeing a larger universe, a bigger picture, maybe having an immense space of heart within which to hold the suffering or the sorrow. Because the result of that, that quality of faith, is also a very special kind of happiness. Faith, in this sense, doesn't mean maybe what we might associate it to mean from uh, earlier Judeo-Christian religions, perhaps. But mostly it's a sense of, as the literal translation of the word from Pali is, to place your heart upon. It means, one, knowing you have a heart, two, knowing it's, a valuable, valuable thing when you place your heart somewhere, that that is no small gift. Three, it's being able to make that gift, to place your heart somewhere, to make that kind of offering. It means confidence. It means trust. It means clarity. It means a joyful giving that honors yourself even in the giving. So it's a very, very special kind of happiness this is a story that I really love from the history of Buddhism, which has to do with the Emperor Ashoka, who was an emperor in northern India some hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. In his early career, Ashoka is said to have been very bloodthirsty and greedy and would often instigate battles in order to gain new territory. It's also said he was a very unhappy man. One day he ordered a particular battle that turned out to be most particularly terrible with a tremendous amount of loss and death and bloodshed. In the morning after the battle, he was walking along that territory amidst the carnage and he saw what had been created by the force of his greed and his desire. It said that just at that time, a Buddhist monk went walking through that same battlefield The monk looked radiant, peaceful, and happy. He walked right by this emperor who was so miserable. The emperor was struck just by the sight of him, even though the monk didn't say a word. Without a single word, somehow the monk's radiance touched the emperor very deeply. And Ashoka thought, how is it that I, who as an emperor, has every single thing a person can desire in the material world. I have everything, and I'm so unhappy. And here's this monk. He has nothing. All he owns are the robes that he's wearing and the begging bowl that he's carrying. And he just seems so happy. What is it? So he followed after him. And as the legend goes, he asks him just that. Why are you so happy? The monk taught him something of the Buddhist teaching, which profoundly affected the emperor. He went through a tremendous uh, transformation. It's said that he became a very just ruler, that he built hospitals, and he planted trees, and he fed people instead of waging war. He practiced meditation quite diligently, and he's also famous in uh, Buddhist history because of these pillars that he erected throughout northern India, so that as people went on pilgrimage, they would continue to come upon these different pillars. The pillars would have inscriptions on them of wisdom, his own personal wisdom sometimes, which one, my favorite actually uh, says something like, the first few years of my meditation practice were quite difficult, (laughs) but I kept on going. (laughs) So I urge you to persevere, something like that. It was both the son and the daughter of Emperor Ashoka, who took the teachings of the Buddha from India to Sri Lanka and helped transplant them in Sri Lanka. It was from Sri Lanka that they spread throughout the rest of Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, and then through Northern Asia, and ultimately all around the world, Barry, Massachusetts, amongst other places. I really love that story because I think of that moment when the monk walked by and he was so profoundly happy, and even though he didn't say a word, it made a difference. It's like really if you think of that chain of events ashoka and his son and his daughter and the transmission of the teachings and all of us sitting here together in this room right now, that monk's happiness changed the course of history without a word just in the the expression of his being. And that all means something for us because it clearly was not an ordinary kind of happiness. It was a very radical kind of happiness. It was happiness maybe in the sense of, of faith, of something that is steadying, is stabilizing. It's the offering of one's heart. It's the honoring of the gift of the offering of one's heart. There's something very different about that than ordinary happiness. I mean, clearly if the monk had just been offered a you know, fantastic lunch and that was the basis of his happiness and he was walking through this battlefield, I don't think you know, Ashoka would have been so overcome <laughs> with wonderment, like wow, <laughs> he looks really happy. It is that radical kind of happiness, which maybe even happiness isn't a sufficient word It's some quality of peace, of presence, of of wholeness in our being that not only is the expression of our own transformation, but is our radiance into this world without contrivance, you know, without thinking of like, gee, I'd really like to convert an emperor today, you know. (laughs) Maybe I'll walk around India, you know, see if I can come upon one. Um, It's just in one's being that this happens. And of course, what's so extraordinary about the teachings is that always what is emphasized is that this is available for all of us. This is the potential for all of us. That this is not something saved for the select few who lived long ago. This is really the potential for everybody. And so we practice to to realize this potential because it really makes a difference. The poet Emerson said, what is life but the angle of vision? A person is measured by the angle at which they look at objects. That is the power of our own awareness. What the objects are come and go due to the arising of all kinds of different conditions. But when we sense the power of the angle of vision, then we sense the refuge that awareness actually gives us, no matter what's going on. We don't have to give in to overwhelming anxiety. We don't have to feel defeated. We don't have to feel oppressed when things are difficult. Because the awareness of them is all important. When things are hard, we don't have to fall into apathy. We don't have to fall into hopelessness. With a certain quality of awareness, no matter what the condition, we really can hold it in a different way. What's important to recognize about this kind of teaching is that this is true for us in a moment-to-moment way. We have all experienced this. At different times, in different ways. So it's not something, you know, when I was first practicing, I had this idea that mindfulness was like the ultimate attainment. And I thought, someday, <laughs> someday, somehow, I will have a moment of mindfulness. I don't know how many years it's gonna take or what kind of rigorous training it's gonna mean, but someday I will have this sublime moment. Well, guess what? We have lots of them, really, all of us. I used to regard it almost as though I was going to get to the top of that mountain and I was going to plant the flag, you know, saying, I got here. But it's a lot closer than that. It's right here. It's completely available in any moment that we remember. Mindfulness means remembering, recollecting. It's like we remember, oh, right, and instantly we're here. So that kind of transformation, awareness, spaciousness, freedom, is available from moment to moment. It's just a question of remembering. For me, one of the very simple examples that the Buddha used that was extremely important for me, um, and many of the examples are very, very simple. I once read that. Every time the Buddha spoke, he spoke so simply even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps as a consequence of that, it's also said he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. (laughs) So here's the simple example. He said that the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and metta moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. Simple. But as soon as I heard it, I was moved by that example because right away I saw myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. One was fantasizing, oh, isn't it going to be great when this bucket is filled? (gasps) It's going to be, imagine being fully enlightened floating down the streets of New York. (laughs) It's going to be so great, but without sort of taking the time and having the patience and the humility and just the presence of mind to add the very next drop. And the other thing I would do would be to see myself standing by the bucket, looking in and thinking, ooh, it's really empty in there. (laughs) This is going to be a long, long haul. And again, in all of that despondency and discouragement, just not adding the very next drop. But that's all that matters, is adding the very next drop. It's right here and now. It's doing it. And we can do it. But we have to somehow um, empower ourselves In just that way, it's right now, being mindful, how we are right now. And that actually is the path. That's how it all happens. Even in the doing of that, because we're not demanding that what is appearing somehow be completely changed according to our will and determination, there's rest There's peace. Of course, in life situations, we change what can be changed. But many, many times, there are things that just cannot be changed. And we have to say, this is it, right now, anyway. This is how it is. And that moment, which isn't fleeing, isn't repressing, isn't denying, isn't pretending, is a very full-hearted moment. And there we are. That's a moment of mindfulness. And it's also a moment of rest, which is different than succumbing. It's different than being crushed by circumstances. It's really meeting what's happening. My uh, Tibetan teacher, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, talked about this kind of rest. He said, rest your weary mind. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Samsara being this world of birth and death, Buddhist teaching. Rest your weary mind. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds very good. So we come awake and we take rest at the same time. Because it's a process that happens in each moment, it's also a process that we can take delight in, and we can respect, and we can respect ourselves for, for the offering of our heart in that way in every moment. It's something that's very real. It's something that unfolds or flowers within us in a almost like a silent, intuitive way. We may not find the words for it, we may not know how to express it, but that doesn't matter. It's something that really is our own. And because of that, not only is the like the goal this extraordinary kind of happiness that is free, that is different than the sort of fragile, dependent happiness that we count on so much. And the happiness we find from pleasure is fine, it's great, but it's so shaky <laughs> as conditions change. So not only is this very um, much more abiding, peaceful radiant sort of happiness, the goal, but it actually is threaded throughout the whole path because of how complete in each moment of mindfulness our, our hearts are and how completely they are offered to the moment, whatever the moment is presenting. And not only that, it's also the basis from which we practice. It's there in the beginning, the middle, and the end. When I first started practicing meditation, you know, I went to India, Um, and I went, I entered my first meditation retreat without really having sat down for one minute in meditation. Um, I entered a 10-day retreat, and somehow when I started, I had an assumption that it took a great deal of laborious, grim effort to tame the mind and to develop concentration. And in my first retreat, I got so frustrated with the persistent wanderings of my attention that, one sitting in like a frenzy, I said, the next time my mind wanders, I am just going to bang my head against the wall. (laughs) And fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. Now in those days, the retreats that we had... um, students were not completely silent. There were silent days and there were silent periods in different days, but there were also periods when people were talking. And this lunch was one period when people were talking. So I'm staying there on the lunch line and I overhear a conversation going on between two people that I didn't know. One of whom was asking this other person, how was your morning? And so the person responded with an apparent great lightness of spirit. Well, I couldn't concentrate at all, but this afternoon will probably be better. And I turned around in complete shock and disbelief, and I thought, don't you know anything about meditation? You know, like, why are you taking this so blithely? And that person uh, turned out to be Joseph Goldstein. That was actually the first time we ever met. I was just looking at him thinking, who are you? You don't know anything. Now, at that point, I had been practicing for about, I don't know, two days, three days. And he'd been practicing for about three or four years, and that was the difference. In that period of time, clearly he had learned what I had yet to learn, which was that that sort of frenzy of uh, shock, disbelief, and, and anger at myself and frustration was not the way, actually. I needed a much bigger perspective as time went on, to understand the natural flow of ups and downs. So that just happens. And as my practice evolved, I came to understand that more and more. Now back to the proximate cause idea. Concentration, like every one of those wholesome, skillful characteristics of mind, has a proximate cause. which I would have thought would have been struggle, torment, maybe like valiant, ardent, intense, somewhat miserable effort. (laughs) But in fact, as I studied, what I found out was that, according to the classical tradition, the proximate cause of concentration is happiness. That was a big surprise. I'd already come to realize that that sort of straining to keep my mind on an object and holding it there and uh, feeling incredibly upset when it wandered was not the way. But what the the teachings were unfolding as a possibility for me was the idea that when the mind is at ease, when there is some quality of, of wholeness, of being okay with things when there's more serenity and openness, then we can concentrate. To some degree, we get that serenity, that openness, from a more correct perspective, having a better view. That was the view, really, that Joseph had on the lunch line, much more than I. That there are always ups and downs, or what we perceive as ups and downs. It's a very cyclical process. It's not going to be a straight line. And that's natural. That's right. That's not because we blew it, you know, by breathing too hard or sitting too straight <laughs> or not straight enough. There are ups and downs. It's just the nature of things, just like it's in life. It's no different. And also what I realized that was that a big part of that kind of serenity and openness of mind, that is the happiness, that's the proxima cause of concentration, had to do with self-respect. Because when my self-respect was strong, I could go through difficult periods in practice without being so terribly disheartened, without feeling that they implied something so cruel and awful about myself. And I could go through wonderful periods in practice without feeling like somehow I had to get a death grip on them (laughs) because were they to ever leave, I would end up feeling bereft and really badly about myself again. So what I saw was that I had to reach underneath all of that conditioning of self-judgment and comparing to establish a base of more ease, understanding that things come and go, internal and external, that's the way of things, and we can be aware in a very different way, and that's freedom, right here and now. That was a tremendous transformation in my practice. To understand that happiness is right. We don't have to live with turbulence and anxiety and regret that we can see ourselves more for who we are, with greater peace and serenity and joy, that that's right, and that's natural, and that's a dedication that we have. That happiness that is the proxima cause of concentration is, again, it's a very special kind of happiness based on self-respect, based on spaciousness, based on tranquility, on openness. And not only is it the basis of concentration, but it's the continual flowering of the heart as we live, as we live a practice. Many of the questions that have come up in the course of the retreat, especially about metta and the relationship of metta and equanimity or wisdom and compassion have reminded me very much of this kind of happiness, which is so different. It's so unusual. Clearly, as we live, things are very complex. They're very difficult often. Sometimes they're wonderful. But it's very rare that we look at the nature of our presence of mind as a factor in our joy, in our sense of completeness, in our sense of self-respect. It's so extraordinary how each of us can be so different about the same thing, depending on what we're bringing to the circumstance. I talked earlier in the retreat about the um, infamous parents' retreats that we used to do here, where we... uh, would invite the parents of our friends, who were often quite upset about what their children were doing, this bizarre new hobby that they'd gotten into, and um, they would come here to practice. And one year we were having a retreat like that, and this friend was going to invite her mother, but she was very reluctant to invite her mother. She said, my mother is the kind of woman who will walk into the office and say those goddamn birds kept me up all night. (laughs) And what was so amazing was that her mother did exactly that. She did exactly that, those exact words. She came and she sat, and I don't know if it was the first morning or the second morning, she marched into the office and she said just that, which is remarkable. You think, wow, birds? (laughs) You know, like, birds are okay. (laughs) But in just a few days she was hearing those same birds very differently there's a very different quality of mind a different quality of happiness that she was bringing to it there's so many ways we can hear a sound any one of us and there's so many ways we can walk move breathe there's so many ways we meet an experience and because of that there is every potential arising, nascent, there, in any circumstance, because how we relate to it is all important. Many of the questions about metta and equanimity or wisdom and compassion point to the the unfathomable level of balance that really practice is about, where we understand the nature of things, we see things as completely as we can, and know that right action or whatever movement we take in the world as best as we can make it will be based on seeing the fullness of conditions. Because in fact, even if we can't see all conditions fully, if we don't really look as deeply as we can, whatever action we take is going to be less effective. Because we're really not seeing what's going on. In one of the great social discourses of the Buddha, he was instructing a king on how to be a good king. And he said, to be a good king, you have to be both just and generous. It said that the king forgot to be generous, even though he was just. And so people started going hungry. Because they started going hungry, they began stealing. Because they began stealing, the king began building jails. (laughs) And at one point, he went back to the Buddha about his problem with I guess not having enough jails or something like that. And, and the Buddha said, you forgot something. <laughs> you forgot something basic. If you don't want people to steal, be generous. Give them food. You know, the answer isn't just on that one level of like build more jails. Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> but look at the conditions as best you can. Maybe we can't have the kind of vision of you know, a completely enlightened being to see all conditions. But we can see a lot more when we pay attention than when we don't. And so wisdom says take some time, really look carefully, see as many conditions as you can that are creating this circumstance, whatever it might be, because then your action has much more possibility of being full, of being effective, of being complete, of being right. And not only that, but seeing the conditions more carefully is also the basis for compassion. Because nothing is just singular. It is the flow of a whole web of conditioning elements that make any one of us behave in a certain way. And somehow that bigger view is a way of having some greater tenderness in one's heart and some care. But no matter what, no matter what the degree of tenderness in one's heart, it doesn't mean you're stupid. Now, people talk about this all the time, you know, how can compassion possibly coexist with justice? Well why not? You know, how can compassion possibly coexist with wisdom? And it kind of has to, doesn't it? Trungpa Rinpoche, who seems to have been a presence in this course somehow, (laughs) had another great phrase. He called it idiot compassion. You know, for, for it to be real, to be effective as a force in the mind, it needs clarity. It needs perception. We need to understand the great web of conditions as best we can. That's real Compassion said so that equanimity, which is the last of the Viharas, and you know what I call the, the voice or the expression of wisdom, it's clear seeing that leads to equanimity, to some sense of, "Oh right, this is how it is." It's a big world, and it's a complex world, and one needs to hold one's inability to completely control the course of events with some balance, with some peace. Otherwise, we cannot sustain any kind of meaningful action. It's said that equanimity endows compassion with courage. Because without some peace in the mind, without some balance in the mind, really, how could we open to suffering? Because the point, you know, of compassion is not to be broken by suffering, it's that openness. The tremendous openness of the mind and the heart, which is possible for us, that opens us not only to pain, but also to joy, to everything. That's the goal of spiritual life. It's that huge, huge openness. Just at this time last year, I was uh, having a major obsession about what to Entitle my second book. Um, it was so bad that uh, be- just before coming back here in February last year to teach, I was teaching in California uh, to two retreats in a row, and it was so very bad that uh, some of my co-teachers would say to me, "I don't want to sit near you in the hall anymore." <laughs> They say, all I do is sit and think of book titles. It was like coming off me in sparks. You know. And sometimes a teacher once walked into the meditation hall and handed me a list of 15 titles that she'd just thought of. Because you know, I was constantly thinking, what should I call it? What should I call it? What should I call it? And nothing was happening. It just was a kind of fruitless obsession. Um, and just really nothing was coming. And then I was sitting here uh, listening to ocean give a talk. And in the course of the talk, she quoted this very great uh, Sri Lankan monk named Jnana Thera, who said, it is compassion that makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. And as soon as she said it, I thought, that's it. That's the book title, which it is, The Heart as Wide as the World. It was such a beautiful expression that our hearts can encompass this world All of it with its joys and its sorrows. This is the size of the cloth. This is the bigness. This is the immensity of perspective that our hearts really can do that. Maybe in a moment, this moment, and then we forget. And then again, it happens. So it's not again, it's not a distant goal that, you know, maybe we can look forward to in 15 lifetimes. It is now. It is intermittent, for sure, (laughs) but it is now. And if it's now, it means it's possible to be more sustained, more continuous, to have a heart as wide as the world. It's equanimity that gives compassion that kind of immense view, that openness. Because without it, compassion would become what is considered, actually in the teachings, its near enemy. Just as all of these qualities have what's known as a proximate cause, they also have what's known as a near enemy, and that's a a quality that's very, very close to it, but not really it. So close that we can get confused and that it can masquerade as the wholesome or the beautiful quality of mind, but it's not really it. And the proximate cause, the uh, near enemy of compassion Sometimes it's called pity, and other times it's known as grief, which doesn't mean that grief is bad, you know, that it's, it's an unwholesome, terrible state. What it means is that it's not the same as compassion. That's different. And what's different about it is really um, kind of a shattering of all faith or trust, all feeling that we can connect with this world. It's the difference between being in pain and having our hearts really break when we're in pain. That's the difference. And they're different. The first time that I went to um, Russia to teach, um, we were traveling around in uh, this small group, going to different people's apartments uh, to teach, because it was still the Soviet Union in those days, and we were kind of surreptitious about it all. We were, you know, we were told, like, well, don't say anything till you're inside the apartment, uh, so nobody knows you're, you know, an American and what you're doing. And in fact, the day before we left to go to the Soviet Union, I was here, and I uh, walked out, in front of the bulletin board, somebody said to me, you better be really careful when you go to the Soviet Union, because I have a friend who went to Russia, to, to Cuba to teach, and he got arrested, <laughs> Thank you for the blessing. (laughs) That's nice. And we went off. So we were going around these different people's apartments and um, teaching, and I was speaking a lot about compassion. And I noticed that every time I use the word, which was being translated to this group, I get this really funny feeling in the room. I just get this sense that, you know, something was kind of strange. And finally I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And the translator said, oh, you know, I described this state where it's like this stake is being driven through your heart, and you're just like totally overcome and shattered and broken by this pain. And and I thought, well, no wonder I'm getting this really funny feeling. You know, because it's not quite that, really, (laughs) as a path. But we can get confused. We can think, yes, that's right. It's not really that because there's a wholeness, there's a, a oneness, there's a sense of sufficiency that actually allows us to give something when someone's in pain. Whereas if we're completely overcome in that way, it's almost like we're more self involved, that our own guilt or our own rage, our own sense of hopelessness is now in center stage, not this person's situation. And so compassion as a motivating force has to have almost a kind of equanimity, which doesn't mean indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. It means some sense of sufficiency that comes from a bigger perspective. This is the joining. It said that equanimity gives loving kindness patience. Because without it, we really would have a big-time agenda. You know, like get better, be happy, do it now. (laughs) You know, I sent you a lot of metta, and I think it's time. Um, You know, because all of that comes quite naturally to us. It's like the near enemy of metta, of loving kindness, is attachment. It's that extra thing of control and wanting to seize and... and, um, Manipulate and make things happen according to our will. Can we really be generous enough to give a gift without needing it to be claimed with gratitude? That's intense. But it's equanimity that actually makes that so. This isn't just idealism. It's the ability to see things as they are, to be at peace with things as they are, that allows us to have more of that sense of loving kindness, which is truly loving kindness. And it's equanimity that also allows us to draw boundaries and to have clear limits, to see this is the limit of what I can do in some situation. That's why I say equanimity is the voice of wisdom. It's called, as, as Carol said, clear comprehension. It means as much as possible seeing the conditions of the moment, maybe the conditions that have led up to the moment, to see in context, to see as clearly as we can according to our own perception. So for example, when the Buddha was talking about right speech, you know, what's right speech? He said, you should say that which is true and also that which is useful. When he said, say that which is true, he didn't seem to mean go around telling everybody exactly what you think of them, you know, in any situation. It's like, is it useful? What's the good of saying it, you know? Is there good to come of it? And there are many, many times for all of us when our mouths are already open (laughs) and the words are just there. And we say, wait a minute, what will this serve, really? Will this serve anything? Or do I just get some kind of strange satisfaction out of saying it? You know, because we don't really. So to say that which is true and that which is useful is an example of clear comprehension. It's trying to see as best we can. And to know that boundaries are appropriate. That we cannot make things be other than the way that they are. That we just do not have that kind of control. That in any moment, what we look at is the force of our own intention. And with as much clear comprehension as we can, the skillfulness of acting in a certain way in a certain moment. His teaching about intention was another one of the Buddha's great social innovations. In the time of the Buddha, uh, there was the caste system as existed in India, uh, which was held to be sacrosanct. It had a lot of um, sacred allusion to it. So that depending on one's caste and one's gender, there was a whole different set of moral or ethical behaviors that were allowed. Somebody who was a Brahmin male might be allowed to study the scriptures and mediate with divine forces and so on, but that might be forbidden to a Brahmin female or to somebody of a lower caste. And so what was moral and right and appropriate and good for one person might be totally inappropriate for somebody else just because of the circumstances of their birth. The Buddha came along and said, not so. He said, it's totally irrelevant. What matters, what is forceful, what is potent, what is creative in ethical behavior, in relationship, in our lives, is one's intention. That an act born out of love, born out of compassion, born out of wisdom is going to have a certain kind of consequence. No matter who does it, whether it's a man or a woman or a Brahmin or an outcast, it's the nature of that seed of love that is getting planted right there. An act born out of greed or anger or delusion will have its own sort of seed nature, no matter who's planting it. And so with that one teaching, he actually cut across all sense of social class or distinction and any uh, sense of virtue that was somehow held by certain people so that we're all held to the same standard, in fact. We have to know our own intentions. We have to be able to look in our own hearts. And that is a source of great self-respect and happiness because only we can know. And we have to do the best that we can. Doing the best that we can doesn't mean that we're pretentious. It means that we see our intentions as clearly as possible. We surround what arises in our minds with as much love and compassion as possible. And that we act selectively from the best intentions that we can find in any given moment with as great a skill as we can act given the nature of the circumstances you Now, once I went to um, a Buddhist Christian conference where the Dalai Lama was uh, presenting some teachings and this was at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky where Thomas Merton had once lived and um the Dalai Lama arrived a day early and was given a tour of the monastery. Then, on the opening night of the conference, he was giving a talk which was also being uh, filmed for PBS. So it was another one of those kind of very intense scenes with you know, television cameras rolling and stuff. And so the Dalai Lama started talking about what it had been like to be given the tour of the monastery. and he said, oh, you know, it was so interesting and so wonderful that the monks here are self-sufficient and they uh, provide for all their needs with having um, the production of both cheese and fruitcake. And then he went on to say that when he'd been given the tour, he'd been offered a piece of cheese but not a piece of fruitcake. And he laughed, one of those tremendous laughs, and he said, ha very unfortunate. Really, I wanted some fruitcake. LAUGHTER but all they gave me was some cheese. And he said, it was good cheese, but really I wanted some fruit cake. And, and he said it again and again and he kept laughing. And I actually I leaned over and I, I said to this bishop who was sitting next to me, I said, Do you think you could get him a piece of cake? <laughs> what was so disarming about the experience was that clearly he didn't need a piece of fruitcake, you know, in order to be a happy, complete human being. But the very fact that he could even say it that simply, like, I really wanted a piece of fruitcake, and that he could laugh at himself, and he could say it so unabashedly in front of religious dignitaries from two different traditions and a television audience (laughs) without a kind of self-consciousness and upset. That was the source, I would imagine, more of his happiness than if, in fact, as I hope did happen, the bishop got him a piece of cake (laughs) later that night. You know, that is a very special kind of happiness that is available. We can have it, of self-respect, of integrity, of knowing our intentions, of acting as clearly as we can, of finding the space of balance. It's balance between clear seeing and the heart's desire to help. It's balance between equanimity and compassion. It's balance between metta for others, and meta for ourselves. To really try to understand that it can be experienced, it can be expressed, it can be known right now. It doesn't mean we don't feel things, it doesn't mean we don't want things like fruitcake. It means that. We understand the power of connection, the joy of opening, no matter what we're opening to, and the, the resiliency and the, the dignity and the beauty of really honoring our own hearts, of respecting that quality of heart that really does care, that really wants to know, wants to understand wants to belong, wants to be free. Because that is an essential, intrinsic part of who we are. And that is an essential, intrinsic part of who everybody is. And somehow, I really think that that's what happens in that moment of sorrow for some people, in those moments of suffering that allows us in those times to transform, not to be broken and not to be held separate, not to be made more isolated by it all, but really, truly, without pretense to be much freer. My very favorite story of the Dalai Lama happened here, when um, we were young, and uh, this was like 1979, and those of us who were here then did, uh, we had a habit of doing something that um, is really very funny in retrospect, which was that in our youth, we would often like, write letters to these extremely eminent, prominent people, inviting them to come here, thinking that they would never come here. And they always came here, always. <laughs> Every single one of them came. And the Dalai Lama was one of these people. 1979, I think, might even have been his first trip to the United States. And We wrote him a letter and said, oh, we have a Buddhist center in Massachusetts. Would you like to come? Never thinking he would come, and he came. So um, it turned out that this is a very big deal. Um, And uh, nowadays it's not quite this way, but then we were told we had to arrange for the security for him. And Not only, of course, is he a great religious figure, but he's an exiled head of state, and so um, (laughs) the... uh, Local police blockaded Pleasant Street, and uh, we had state troopers patrolling on these roofs with guns, (laughs) and it was a total zoo, and the video cameras were going, and it was a very, very intense thing, and I had just been in this car accident and had broken a bone in my foot and was using crutches, which I was not very dexterous with, and I was standing in back of about 100 people waiting for his arrival, feeling quite morose, thinking, Oh no! You know here I am, way in the back, and I'm stuck here, and I can't use these crutches, and you know I've been at the center since the beginning, and I have to stay in the back, and you know and it's like wretched and horrible and yucky, and uh, so I was feeling very bad. And um, then his car pulled up in the middle of this zoo, you know, with the state troopers and the whole thing. And he got out of the car, and he did something that I have seen him do many times since that moment which is that he seems to have a kind of radar for the person in the crowd who's suffering the most, and he just goes there, and that was me. It's like, I don't even know how he saw me, but he just made his way instantly. He got out of the car, he went right through 100 people, he got to me standing there in the back on my crutches, and he took my hand, he looked me in the eye, and he said, what happened? (laughs) And it was so great, because it's like the worst pain of that moment, Completely dissolved when he did that. It's like he couldn't make my leg any better and he couldn't make me any better with the crutches. But that awful feeling of being so alone, so left out, so forgotten by life, so cut away, it was gone just in that moment. And that's real compassion. There's so many moments in this life when we cannot make all the pain go away, we cannot change someone else's behavior. We cannot make things hap- you know, happen according to our will or our whim or our wish, but we can do that. We can really be present. We can really be at one with what is going on without being crushed by it. I mean, if he had you know, come over and been as miserable as I, I don't think it would have done much for me. <laughs> But it was in his presence that was so complete, and in his offering of that, that was that was the great blessing of that moment. So I really do hope he got his (laughs) fruitcake all those years later, (laughs) like almost twenty years later, um, as we go through this lifetime and meeting again and again. So please, you know, as you um, leave or think about leaving (laughs) or uh, begin to contemplate what the nature of practice is when you're gone, this is really it. That there is a potential within each of us which is so huge. It is so enormous. And it hasn't missed somebody in this room. You know, it's not like... Uh, you were late for tea or something, you know, and you missed it. Yeah. Is there? And there's every possibility of of bringing it to life and actualizing it and living in a way that is like that monk walking across the battlefield, where our own being, just in being, makes a difference to this world. It's a very great endeavor.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.